Welcome to Next in Nonprofits. I'm Steve Boland, and I am very pleased today to be able to be joined by Trent Stamp, the CEO of the Eisner Foundation. Trent, thanks so much for taking the time. Steve, it's my pleasure. Thank you. I was excited to hear uh, from your team a little bit about your work and your focus, but I'm not going to steal your thunder. Can you just introduce the work of the Eisner Foundation? Sure. The Eisner Foundation is is based out of Los Angeles, and we are the, the family foundation originally created by Michael and Jane Eisner and their family. Michael, of course, was um, the CEO of the Walt Disney Company for, for 20 years, and it provided um, great fortune to him. And he's uh, he and his family have decided to um, to to disperse it uh, responsibly in, in Los Angeles and the country. Um, and um, for the last couple of years, we have been the only foundation in America, as far as we can tell, um, that is investing solely in intergenerational solutions. Um, we can talk about what exactly that means, but we are uh, we are a foundation looking for organizations that are working intergenerationally um, for the betterment of the community in which they work. And that was one of the things that was so exciting to hear about when I, I heard from your staff about this work, that um, usually a, a philanthropic focus is a little bit more on a programmatic area. You know, we, we want to serve, um, you know, the needs of the elderly or the needs of young people or immigrant communities or something. Um, but your organization really sees all of the solutions to those different silos uh, a little bit differently by, by focusing more on bringing people across generations to solve different types of problems. So it's not just a uh, educational nonprofit or a social services nonprofit or whatever, but really something that brings to a, um, a series of problems a similar set of solutions, if I'm understanding it right. That's 100% correct. We obviously are, are looking to have impact um, among low-income communities, um, and we work primarily in Los Angeles County. So we are trying to provide access and opportunity, um, justice um, to folks who have been left behind by, um, by our society. But all that being said, what we're looking for is for people who are embracing intergenerational solutions as a, a path to get um, to those to those processes. So um, we, we want people who who are including more than one generation in, in whatever work it is that they're doing. Um, we're looking for people who are trying to provide benefits to, to both parties, to, to older folks and to younger folks, um, folks who are trying to make their community stronger, and people who look at multiple generations, who look at, at seniors and look at children, not just as, as people to receive benefits, but as people who can provide benefits. We're looking for people um, who think that by investing in seniors and in kids primarily, um, you can bring about a better world and that you can see those those two populations, not just as, as folks who need help, but as people who can provide help to the other generation. So this was not, uh, I, at least I don't recall, as I've been looking at your information, you know, the the founding mission of the organization as the Eisner family put some resources together for the common good. This is something that you came to a little bit later. Is is there uh, a, a story behind why the focus on intergenerational tactics across all these mission areas? Sure. There's 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 kind of a, a two pronged reason for it, and the, I mean, just as, as historical precedent here, you know, when when Michael Eisner was actively running Disney, this foundation was focused on children's related programming. Um, there's obviously a synergy there. The wealth came about primarily um, through providing. Um, 
programming, um, for lack of a better word, mm-hmm. for kids um, through movies and through theme parks and television and those types of things. So it made all the sense in the world that the foundation would then invest in um, in providing programming for children. When I came about in 2008, um, which is a relevant year in the, in the philanthropic world, um, I came to work for the foundation in 2008. Um, Michael was no longer at Disney and I looked around and I asked the, the family, um, are we investing in children's related programs because children are cute or are we <laughs> investing in children's related programs, um, because children lack access and they lack opportunity and they lack advocacy. Um, and if that's the case, then shouldn't we add seniors as a focus also? Because in many cases, at least philanthropically, we found that a lot of the organizations that were working with seniors, those seniors um, were lacking access and opportunity and advocacy and, and were really um, you know, at risk, especially in Los Angeles and Los Angeles County, which can be a, a very difficult place to live if you don't have much money. Um, and the answer the family said, of course, is that um, you were not investing in children just because they're cute, but because we want to help them and we want to um, level the playing field for them. So we added seniors as a focus also. But for those first couple of years, um, we were primarily were um, spending about 80% of our budget on children's related nonprofits and 20% on uh, senior related nonprofits. And, and again, kind of doing the same general thing, access to arts and education and food and healthy environments and, and the environment um, and education. And um, and then you have to remember, of course, that in 2008, our foundation, like most foundations in America, saw a little bit of a dip in our <laughs> Um I take it we are exaggerating the word little just a bit here because the historic impact of the Great Recession on most endowed organizations was pretty substantial, right? We lost about 35% of our yeah. corpus in about an hour and a half. Um, and it was about three months after I had come in to take over the foundation. So um you bring in the you know the high price superstar magnificent foundation leader to take over the foundation <laughs> and we promptly lost most of our money um or a good percentage of our money to be right. fair mm-hmm. um so we started looking for uh ways in which we could invest in programs that would serve children and seniors at the same time um basically make one grant and work with two groups and so that was the original incentive. This was the original impetus was that we were not necessarily thinking this is the smartest way in the history of the world to invest in children and invest in seniors. It was that we didn't have as much money as we used to have and we still wanted to do just as much good. So we looked for groups that were working with both groups. And over time, we found that it wasn't just an efficiency issue. The organizations that we found that were the most dynamic, the most impactful, that were bringing about the most sustainable change in Los Angeles weren't working with kids and seniors because they thought they could get funding from a foundation or because they thought that it was a cute thing to put on their annual report. They were doing it because it brought about the best results. And we found that the organizations that we thought were the most dynamic and the most interesting and were having the highest 
highest possible impact were those organizations that were working intergenerationally. And at that point, we started investing more and more and more in organizations that worked intergenerationally with both groups at the same time for a community benefit. And as a result, over time, we evolved and we decided one day, what the heck, let's just make everything in our portfolio be intergenerational. And that's where we are in 2018. Every organization that we fund, every grant that goes out the door is an organization that is working intergenerationally with both groups, seeing both groups as recipients, both groups as actors and as resources that can serve the other group, and is trying to create a one plus one equals three mentality where you work, you help one group, you help the other group, and then exponentially you help society as a whole. I'm interested, and I want to get into some of the specifics of the case studies uh, about some of the organizations you've funded and, and what those impacts are. But I want to back up a second on the idea of when you came into this work, you um, didn't, uh, you know, just come to this as, you, as your first foray into the philanthropic world. You had um, most recently been at a Charity Navigator, as, as I understand it from the bio. And I think understanding that the role of Charity Navigator in the philanthropic world to really help people understand impact against investment is um, maybe help you help the Eisner folks see that impact double bottom line opportunity. Um, maybe when you weren't even anticipating that would be what it was and even this kind of child of invention or necessity being the uh, mother of invention here that you had to get a little bit more um, uh, creative because resources were down. But I, I think maybe your work with Charity Navigator allowed you to start understanding impacts in that, in that double bottom line investment maybe differently from somebody else would have. Oh, absolutely. And, and the job that I had before that was that I was a vice president at Teach for America. So I had seen, you know, a large national nonprofit um, that was working in multiple regions trying to create um, high level impacts in a difficult political environment at times. Um, and I had seen, you know, that even though they had a who's who of the single most impressive board of directors you'd find, you know, um, out there in the nonprofit world, um, they were struggling to deliver impact themselves. You know, they could yeah. measure the inputs pretty well. They could say that we've got, um, you know, the the fifteen percent best college graduates in America going into schools and we're training the heck out of them and we're unleashing them. But it was really hard to figure out on the back end whether there was a transformative effect for the kids that they were trying to serve. And then when I went to Charity Navigator and 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 got that off the ground, um, you know, we could we could do the same thing. We could focus a lot on inputs. We could focus a lot of time on um, you know, the dollars coming in, how are they being spent um, were they efficient? Were they growing as an organization? Um, were they unnecessarily not paying for things they shouldn't be paying for? Um, were they transparent? Were they accountable? But again, you know, it's really hard to measure on the back end. Is that organization having a high level of impact? So that's one of the things that we've tried to do at the Eisner Foundation by focusing on something, you know, relatively eclectic as intergenerational programs. It really has allowed us to shrink our grant pool um, and really get involved with those particular organizations so that 
Um, we don't have to provide a, or put on a, a one-size-fits-all kind of metric for measuring impact. We can go out, do multiple site visits, get to know the board, get to know the organization, and really focus on, on understanding, you know, are they having that, that, you know, that double bottom line kind of impact that we're looking at uh, because we see it up close and we can see what the impact is on the seniors. We can see what the impact is on the kids, and we can see what they do to bring about positive income or positive positive uh, outputs for uh, for the people that they serve primarily in the city of Los Angeles. So you mentioned the, um, or we, we started talking a little bit about this intergenerational focus as an important you know, um, point of where the foundation is and, and the conversations you want to have more broadly with other people in philanthropy to understand how this is impacting the organizations you're funding and, and the, the people around them. Um, but you're doing so a couple of other things differently from some other um, larger foundations as well in um, being open to the idea of multi-year general operating support, general operating operating grants as well as program-specific grants that may be growing or doing those things. Um, and as you said, by shrinking the pool a little bit, you're doing slightly larger grants uh, for those organizations to be able to get in a little bit deeper. Are, are you hearing from colleague organizations about the decisions that you're making on um, those areas in addition to intergenerational and how it is impacting thinking with other charities in the community? We think so. I mean, we, we approach our grant making at the Eisner Foundation, um, hopefully with a good dose of modesty and humility um, in that we're not prescriptive in any way whatsoever. We, we, we don't for a second pretend, you know, while we sit in our offices at our foundation, um, that we know how best to run your particular organization. So we wear you out on the front end. We really do. And any of our grantees will tell you that our, um, our application process is probably too burdensome. Uh, we ask too many questions and we <laughs> ask for too much material and we want to talk to you too much. Um, but once we make a gift, we almost exclusively make that for general operating support because I think it's really arrogant of me to show up and tell you this is exactly how I think you should spend the money. I want you to treat the people that you work with with great respect um, and great dignity, and I want you to try to make the world a better place um, on the backs of the money that I spent um, investing in your organization. But telling you how to spend that money on a Tuesday um, <laughs> really, really to me, you know, sets up kind of a paternalistic relationship where I'm acting like I'm smarter than you are and you are in the trenches. So I can tell you that when I first showed up here almost 10 years ago and I went around and I went on a listening tour with every organization in Los Angeles that I could get in the door with and I, I told them, um, you know, what I just told you that we're going to wear you out on the front end, but on the back end, I want to make general operating grants because I want to be a partner and I want to support you. And I want you to be able to make smart decisions for how you can spend your money. And the throwaway line that I said is, you know, if you think that buying a copy machine is what the best way for you to have impact, then you should buy the friggin' copy machine. You know, I mean, you know, what, whatever it takes for you to get there. And, uh, and I, you know, I must have just had some sort of political stump speech that, you know, I must have said that line over and over again about buying the friggin' copy machine. Um, and, you know, a year and a half, two years later, when our my reports started coming in from organizations um, talking about the impact that they had had, I found that we had bought six copies. <laughs> uh, 
So I don't know if they took me literally um, or if there was a great dearth of copy machines that was out there until the Eisner Foundation showed up. Um, but I did find that if, if you back off and you tell organizations, I'm not going to micromanage every dollar. I want to make sure when I come back in a year that you've had impact um, on the backs of our dollars, um, then I think that we've, we've done a good thing. Well, to get just a little nonprofit wonky for a second, then I do really want to get into uh, sure. some conversations about some of the organizations you are currently funding and how you see that work progressing. But um, you know, the 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 charity navigator um, overhead myth dot com kinds of conversations about um, um, what is the right measure of a successful charity. I do think that there are many. Um, uh, organizations out there that are sort of infrastructure starved because when they have gone out for those program grants, they have been told that anything that qualifies as management and general um, spending, you know, isn't allowed under this grant. And, you know, oftentimes rather than doing program allocations against a copy machine, they just don't get one. They just, right. you know, forget it. We just, you know, we'll live without that for now. Uh, so if somebody gives them the breath to say, all right, infrastructure can be uh, an important investment and it can matter. And, it, you know, maybe it's a copy machine and maybe it's a, a new computer or maybe it's something else. But um, if infrastructure is part of what you need, it shouldn't be somehow disposed of as bad because it's uh, useful over a long period of time and not all expended right within that program that you're executing just that six month period or whatever it could be. We do hear that from lots of other charities though, or from lots of other foundation partners, lots of other funders saying, our dollars are reserved for this program, you have to allocate it this way, period. And I do think that having you have that conversation may have really provided that that breath that some needed to think infrastructure matters too. Oh, absolutely. And I I, I always thought, I've been gone from Charity Navigator for 10 years, and I'm, I'm very proud of the work that I did there, but I always thought Charity Navigator got a bum rap in that argument. Um, you know, we were measuring a, a variety of different financial um, factors, including, of course, admin costs as a percentage mm -hmm. of program costs um, and fundraising costs. But we're also we're measuring dollars coming in and growth and whether they had money in the in the bank for a rainy day. Nobody, nobody ever criticized Charity Navigator for saying you should have at least six months um, worth of funding in the yeah. bank uh, moving forward. But they grabbed onto that 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 fundraising number or that uh, that admin number. Um, what we were trying to do at the time was to measure the financial health of an organization and knowing full well that um, two organizations, one that's financially healthy and one that's not, um, you know, are going to have less, one's going to have less impact than the other, and one's not going to be around for the long term to really transform their community and the people they serve. So, um, you know, people were quick to jump on Charity Navigator and say, how dare you measure this particular one thing when we were measuring 20 other things. Right. And like you said, foundations, the, the big smart people in the room with their, you know, oak paneled walls have been saying the same stupid thing to nonprofits for years. And they've been the ones that withheld funding as a result, but nobody ever jumped up and down and said, how dare the foundation tell people they should keep their admin costs low. Um, but it was Charity Navigator, six guys in a room in Mawa, New Jersey with one lousy <laughs> server, all of a sudden we were a threat to the nonprofit way of life. So, um, no, I, you know, and I, that's, that's like I said, I mean, to people, you know, I mean, I think that these types of conversations, the more we can talk about them. When I first started Charity Navigator, people said, how dare you ever attempt to rate a charity? 
Um, you know, in 2018, we rate every single thing you can possibly imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, and the internet has democratized that type of thing and allowed people to rate everything. So we need to figure out how to have these types of conversations where we say, yes, we're going to rate things. Let's figure out how to best rate things. Um, and where we can find foundations who can say, yes, here's our concern, you know, because the concern is not that you buy a copy machine. It's that you make a dumb grant and you give somebody a hundred thousand dollars. And in six months, you're going to find yourself on the front page of the LA times for doing something and endowing some guy's vacation home. Um, so if the foundation would go in there and say, you know, here's what we're trying to avoid and here's what we're trying to achieve. How do we do both of those things while still giving you the type of funding you need to achieve the type of results that we'll be proud to put in our annual report at the end of the year and we'll be proud to tell people that we wanted to fund you and that you should fund them also. I think that we can get to a higher level conversation without people just criticizing each other and demonizing each other and trying to find quick ways to, to, to have sloppy arguments that don't hold up in the nonprofit world. So to get specific about some of the organizations that you have been able to support through Eisner Foundation, uh, I was looking at the, your most recent annual report on your website. Uh, you've got some good case studies of um, helping to illustrate that multiple bottom line idea of in you know thinking about the strategy of intergenerational um, um, usage and investment as something that really has all of these impacts of people being contributors as well as recipients of assistance. And I, I'm wondering if there's any particular one of those that you're using on a current, um, you know, this is my favorite one to talk about right now, or um, I, I just think illustrating this would be helpful for some of the folks listening about which of the uh, kind of stories that, that you can tell do you think helps illustrate this idea of intergenerational support? Yeah, sure. I mean, if, if you don't mind, I mean, just just to make the case in the first place, it's just the idea that we have to figure this out. I mean, America yeah. is is graying by the moment. Um, you know, the silver tsunami, if it's not coming, is here. Um, and, um, you know, whatever the data is, you know, the one that, that I like to, you know, to trot out is that by 2050, um, the number of adults over age 65 will double from what it is today to 80 million people. Um, at the same time, I don't think anybody, no matter how you know rosy you are out there on your outlook right now, um, and no matter how high the Dow climbs, will we'll tell you that kids living in urban and rural settings right now are thriving. You know, we're talking about somewhere around 40% of kids are dancing either at or below the poverty line. So we've got an aging population, and we've got a lot of kids who are in trouble. Um, and so we can stick our heads in the ground, um, and say these single silo approaches to combating the issues that affect America and affect these two populations, um, will continue to work as great as they have worked. Um, or we can try to figure out ways to bring those two groups together to serve each other. Um, and so, you know, Right now, I was just out there this week, you know, here in Los Angeles, there's an organization called One Generation. Mm -hmm. Um, And One Generation is primarily a senior daycare um, for low-income folks who need somewhere to go during the day because they can't take care of themselves. And primarily, there's somebody at home who is a worker um, and has to go and work and support the family, but they can't take care of grandpa or grandma during the day. So they need a place to take that person 
So they take them to one generation, um, and that's fine. And they provide their senior daycares all across the country. But what makes this senior daycare different is that it has a preschool built inside it. Um, so there are a bunch of kids who are there all day long um, who also need a place to go during the day. So we have two marginalized populations with a workforce in the middle. Um, and what happens at that senior daycare is not just a warehousing of those two groups, but something awesome and beautiful and dynamic, and it would melt your heart if you saw it. It is the seniors working with the kids, it's the kids working with the seniors, and both of them are transformed as a result. The health benefits for the seniors are striking. You know. A large percent of them report that their stress levels go down. A large percentage of them report a major improvement in their mood. Um, they report feeling healthier. They re report an actual decline in whatever their chronic condition it is that they makes them um, unable to take care of themselves during the day. While the kids actually learn better, the kids actually, and I'm not just talking about soft things like empathy um, and compassion. I'm talking about demonstrable reading levels, um, demonstrable math levels, because it turns out that seniors, for the most part, are better mentors and better teachers than people at the younger age because they're they're just better at it. They've been doing it for a long time. They're less likely to get impatient. They're less likely to fly off the handle. They're less likely to say, you know, I'm not coming tomorrow because, um, you know, I've done my resume building. They're there for the right reason, which is they're there to help and they're there because they need help themselves. So um, this is the the double, triple, quadruple, you know, whatever you'll let me talk about, simple, <laughs> um, bottom line, which is, you know, you have two populations that, you know, to an outsider need help. They don't have anywhere to go during the day. They don't have anyone to take care of them. Um, and we can warehouse them and shove them in the corner, or we can try to figure out a way to use them both as resources. They both provide services to each other. They both receive services from each other. And as a result, our community gets better. So that's your kind of your classic prototypical intergenerational program. That's obviously a more obvious one. I mean, the heck, the organization is called One Generation. Mm -hmm. um, but that's the type of thing we look for in the programming and the type of thing we like to invest in. So when you talk about putting the work in up front with a potential organization like that, when you decide to work with them, are you talking with them about you know how they measure both the number of hours that seniors might put in as volunteers to help out the young people, as well as you know how do you measure their own quality of life improvements from being part of that effort before you step foot in? Or do they already have those measures and they come talk with you about, no, we've already defined that and let me just show it to you? Or how does, how does that upfront work happen in an organization? like that uh, the answer is yes um, <laughs> you know I mean you know you've talked to enough people to know that you know if you've if you've talked to one foundation you've talked to one foundation um, and in our particular case some organizations that come to us are you know are ready to go um, you know they've been doing this type of programming for years. Um, they know it works. They're not doing it because they're trying to, you know, be intergenerational. They're doing it because um, they're trying to have high impact on the people that they serve. And they all of a sudden realize, oh my God, there's a funder out there who thinks like we do. And they have the results, they have the impacts, they have everything in place and they're ready to um, to walk in the door and they have everything ready for us. And it's a 
relatively easy process from there. There are other organizations that we have worked with, um, you know, that have a, a high quality reading program for low income kids in the third grade, um, but they haven't quite gotten to the level that they want to get to. And they now realize that there is a capable and active senior population in their community that they think that if they brought them in as volunteers and train them and utilize best practices from other nonprofits, they could probably take their organization to levels that they haven't previously achieved. Um, and we'll work with them and try to figure out how best to do that and how best to fund that. That's going to be a little messier because we're not going to have the impact data that we'd like to have in place when we start. But if you have a good charismatic leader who really has his or her heart in it and is ready to go there and a board that's ready to take them to that level and you already have your partnerships in your community, we're ready to uh, to partner with you. So, um, you know, it, it comes in, in both ways, um, but we don't have a dearth of LOIs coming in our door because right. um, we're willing to take um, open applications from everybody and anybody. Um, you know, we ask you to read our website and go through the guidelines and look at the types of organizations we fund and understand that I'm going to wear you out with the application process. It's not going to be, you know, you send me an email and you get a, a check in the mail three days later. Um, but we want to make sure, again, when we, especially when we do something kind of as odd as what we do here, um, and I say that with great respect for our own work, we want to make sure that we have an open LOI, an open application process, so anybody that's out there who's doing something interesting and innovative can get in the door and tell us about it and we don't want to go back to what i said before about being paternalistic and acting like we're smarter than you are and telling people no 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 you can't apply until we invite you to apply well but i think you've done a very good job on your side of uh um you know gating the right types of inquiries so i i'm looking at your um, most recent annual report about 292 letters of intent that have come in that only resulted in 29 new grants in that most recent year. I mean, there's some multi-year funding in addition sure. to that, I, I think. But um, if if I told any number of the folks that I work with that there's, you know, $100,000, $300,000 of the grant money out there, you'd have a, a you know, way more than 292 letters of inquiry. But they understand, first of all, you're working within Los Angeles County. And, you know, that's a um, doesn't matter necessarily, you know, what um, other restrictions that are, if you're just not within that community, it's, it's, you know, you should be able to read the guidelines on the website and understand this is where the, the majority of the philanthropic resources goes. So, it, but it seems like you also have been very clear about this. You need to, you know, be able to communicate and work with and achieve to some intergenerational component of what you're working. And I see here that you've got charities that fit into uh, health and wellness, education and training, civic organizations, arts organizations. So it's not just that traditional human services thing, you know, what, that people might think about when they talk about things like, you know, a, a senior care or a daycare situation, but really a pretty broad range of nonprofit missions that are able to incorporate that intergenerational component. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and touching on the first point of the 292 LOIs, that number has been declining over the years. We, we first year that I was here, we had around 1,100. Um, but you know, if you decline somebody, you know, two, three, four times, they they generally, you know, take their ball and 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 move on, um, and and go find a funder that's going to be a better fit for them at that point. So we 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 try not to wear you out too much at the really initial process. All we ask for is a is an LOI. Uh, um, because we don't want you to waste a ton of time because we respect your time. Even if you're not a great fit for us philanthropically, um, we don't want you to waste a ton of time um, if it's not going to work out well for you and for us to work together. So um, so all we ask for is an LOI. We, we decline a, a large percentage of those. So unfortunately, you know, we don't have limitless funds. 85% of them or so get declined at the LOI level. But at that point, all you're out is, is a half hour or so of your time and then yeah. waiting to see if uh, if you get the LOI but but yeah getting back to what you were, you were touching on you know we're trying to make LA a better place um, and I know that every foundation that works here would say that um, but by saying that that's what we're trying to do we're trying to make it a more just a more equitable place where there are more opportunities primarily for kids and seniors and people of color who are living at or below the poverty line um, we're trying to make it a better place there are a thousand different ways that we could do that and there are a thousand different ways that that um, service delivery could take place and if we ask that all we want you to do is to make LA a, a better place, a more just and equitable place for people who are underserved, and we want you to work intergenerationally, then that allows us to work in the arts. It allows us to work in the environment or the schools or with the justice system or access to attorneys um, or any of those types of things. And so it, it doesn't pigeonhole us in terms of the type of program that we're looking for. It just pigeonholes us in the way that we want you to work, with, which, is, which is that we want you to embrace intergenerational solutions and intergenerational initiatives because we think that you think that by uniting multiple generations, for the betterment of our community, you can have higher impact. So, um, yeah, there are there are many many paths to the waterfall, um, mm -hmm. and that waterfall is is Los Angeles being a place that um, you know a, a true city of angels. Um, and if you can figure out a way to get there by working intergenerationally, we don't really care whether it is that you're providing meals or providing access to after school program or providing art, uh, or providing healthcare, any one of those things is going to make this a better city. Um, and if you can do that working intergenerationally, then we want to hear from you at the Eisner foundation. So, you know, the majority of your resources goes towards that mission uh, that you just described very well, but there's a, a little bit of opportunity to promote just the idea of intergenerational connection and, and how all that can benefit other um, charities, other philanthropies, other folks um, that is sort of embodied in the Eisner Prize. Uh, so that, if I'm reading this correctly, is not necessarily restricted to just Los Angeles County. Is that correct? That is correct. That yeah. was our our idea um, that um, we could do a couple of things. Um, one of the things that we do bring to the philanthropic community is that we have a, a well-known living donor um, who is, um, you know, is obviously respected in, in the entertainment and in the business world. Um, and so we thought that if we could put our name on a prize, a national prize for the best intergenerational organization, Maybe we could shine a light on that 
and cause a few folks to enter the sector, a few folks to embrace these types of programs, because we do believe that every nonprofit, every single nonprofit can benefit from implementing intergenerational initiatives. Um, and so if we could shine a light na nationwide and we, you know, we have the, the luck of, of a living donor who people know who uh, who can generate some press attention for those types of organizations when we annually award our Eisner Prize, um, then we think that that's a good thing, not only for that particular organization, but for other organizations who might do the kind of work they do but are not working intergenerationally. The other reason was selfish, um, which is if we want to work here in Los Angeles by providing high-level intergenerational programs, we as a staff wanted to have the opportunity to learn from those nationwide who were doing really good work and figure out if nothing else, what works in their community and could we bring their best practices to the work that we do in Los Angeles or could we even replicate their work by bringing the organization or bringing an affiliate of it here to Los Angeles. So um, we felt that, you know, if we were going to have a true, you know, Eisner Prize for the best intergenerational organization, it needed to be national so that we could bring attention to those who were doing good work and so that we could learn from their work and potentially bring it to Los Angeles. So how does the submission process work for that? Uh, do you have an internal team that looks for nominees or do you solicit those from members of the community? How do you hear about them? We have gone all different ways. We've had a, a jury of national experts. We've had an open application process. Um, one year we tried to just do it on Twitter um, mm -hmm. in terms of the submission process. You know, I mean, one of the great things about running this foundation is you know we can try anything um you know we don't have a, a giant board of directors we have the eisner family and they're a relatively innovative and entrepreneurial family and so they're willing to try just about anything if it works so at this point for the 2018 eisner prize um, we have not opened our application process but we will ask for submissions through our site at the eisner foundation Okay. So we are starting to run a little low on time. I did want to ask you, again, as a podcast that focuses on innovation in the nonprofit sector and newer ideas, um, well, first of all, I want to make sure we allow some time for how people can kind of stay in touch with the work that you're doing and help promote some of these ideas about um, making sure there's these intergenerational opportunities across different nonprofit missions. But um, I want to just ask a moment about being a private foundation in this work uh, with a family that, you know, has been that endowed the, the creation of the institution in the beginning. Uh, so without going outside to have to constantly recruit, you know, boards of directors and all the rest of it, uh, the leadership from the family uh, is sort of your constant. How does that um, play out in, in the mission focus of what you're doing? How, how does that, it's not where most of the organizations that I work with in the foundation world um, still have that kind of uh, family focus of the original uh, donors. Right. Well, that's that is part of the beauty of this is that we don't have to worry about donor intent. Um, you, <laughs> you know, can I, go ask. <laughs> I, I can go ask. And if it believe me, if I haven't asked in a couple of days, they will come tell me. <laughs> um, so there there is no confusion over what the family who's uh, whose name is on the door would like to do. Um, but one of the the cool things that has happened in the last couple of years is, um, you know, is is that the Eisner Foundation, while we have decided to create intergenerational programming and to look for organizations that work intergenerationally, 
um, the Eisner Foundation as an entity has become intergenerational. Yeah. Um, it is Michael and Jane Eisner, their three grown sons and their three um, wives, the three daughters-in-law. And when I was hired 10 years ago, and I was hired 10 years ago almost to the day, there were no grandchildren. Um, today, there are nine. Um, <laughs> so the organization, while we look for intergenerational programs, um, is starting to work intergenerationally. And we're trying to figure out what that means. Um, how do we get those grandchildren into the grant making process? Um, how do we respect that? And I can tell you that, that the, the issues that we confront um, become a lot more salient and a lot more relevant to, you know, Michael and Jane Eisner as they become grandparents and they see that the access and the opportunities that their grandchildren are lucky enough to have and the wisdom that they're able to bestow upon those grandchildren, not every family out there in America has that kind of access, has that kind of opportunity, and has that kind of older mentor in their life um, that can provide that wisdom and can provide that counsel and can be that person who is um, you know, relentlessly looking out for that person, that person who is, you know, irrationally in love with those children. Um, and so what we try to do with some of our grant making is to, is to simulate that, um, and to create, you know, those types of opportunities for kids, um, and those opportunities for older folks who would like to be mentors um, to kids who are at risk. So is there thought of growing the mission impact by growing the corpus outside the original family investment? Or are you just content to say we, we have our corpus, it's growing, let's focus on the work and not about building Eisner as an institution? Well, you know, to this date, we have been a, a single source funded organization. Um, and, and Michael and Jane have been unbelievably generous um, with their funding by, by turning it over and, and, and creating um, a true working foundation that is uh, accountable to the city in which we work. So um, over time, you know, will we grow that funding? Um, I think we may grow it internally. I think we may grow it externally. Um, but for right now, um, you know, I wake up every morning and have a, a generous budget to try to make Los Angeles a more equitable, equitable place, um, and a more intergenerational place. And I'm very pleased to have that, uh, that budget to work with. Yeah. Well, and a relatively lean staff to do it with at least what I've seen on the website. I don't know if you've got other folks that, um, are supporting the work that aren't mentioned there, but it looks like you're, you're kind of keeping your overall staff component very busy with how many people you've got doing the work. Are, are there teams of other folks that just didn't have room on the website to talk about, or are you, are you keeping it pretty lean in terms of your staff commitment? Um, there, there are no secret people uh, <laughs> floating around in, in pods anywhere that are, uh, that are on, the, on, on the payroll, um, what you see on the website. We believe very much in transparency and accountability. We have all of our uh, financial forums on the website, and everything is public, um, and all the staff members that are there, which is as small as it is, um, are, are listed on the site. You know, when I was younger, when I ran Charity Navigator, I had uh, 15, 20 people working for me. The older I get, um, the less people I want to have to, uh, to manage over the time. <laughs> so, uh, and every dollar that we spend internally is a dollar that we can't spend externally. So while I want to take care of our people and make sure that they're paid okay and that we have coffee in the coffee pot and the parking spaces are, um, are dry and, and ready for you to go, uh, we do want to make sure that uh, the vast majority of what we spend at the Eisner Foundation is spent on our grantees.
Yeah. Well, and all sorts of ways to kind of crack that nut, but I appreciate you finding a niche with the family that really works, that uh, you can kind of bring that that uh, spotlight to these tactics uh, and encourage others in philanthropy, other charities to think about what intergenerational work could mean for them and how to highlight it. So for people that are interested in keeping in touch with your work, even if they're not potential grantees, but are just you know wanting to learn more about this focus, how, how's the best way for them to stay in touch? with your work you can contact us directly through our website and we're at eisnerfoundation.org um, we also have a, a, a healthy social media component because i think that uh, while we're not trying to trumpet our own work we're trying to make sure that we have access to, to people who want to share um, their thoughts and their visions so we're at eisner found um, on Twitter and we have a, an active Facebook page. Um, you know, our phone numbers or email addresses are all listed and, and we're ready for, for calls. Um, uh, we take very seriously what we're doing in, in the sense that we do think that we've gathered some information. We do think that we know what works intergenerationally and, uh, and we, we do a series of convenings and trainings for nonprofits. And, um, I'm on a series of boards, um, here and nationwide where we try to get others to work intergenerationally. And, and share our best practices and what we've learned over time um, without being, you know, overly boastful in any way or um, pretentious and acting like we're smarter than anyone else. But we've had access to, to things that not everyone has seen in the philanthropic world by doing something, as I said before, relatively eclectic um, and relatively, you know, not on the on the chosen path. So um, we do encourage people to reach out if they want to fund things that we're funding or they want to tell us about things that we should be funding or people who want funding um, or people who just want to, you know, tell us that uh, we're smart or stupid or interesting or any of those things. Um, we do take very seriously that we are a, a public organization and a public charity and, uh, and that we need to honor that at all times. Great. I, I think it's such a wonderful way to conclude a really interesting conversation. And I appreciate you taking the time to share these ideas with other people and get that message out there as broadly as possible about what you're seeing as successful in your community and hoping others can pick up that idea and uh, implement it more broadly in their spaces too. So uh, Trent Stamp, CEO of the Eisner Foundation, thanks so much for your time today. It was an honor to be on your podcast, and thank you for all the good work you guys are doing to uh, to educate the uh, the nonprofit world and those that view the nonprofit world on on what works and what doesn't work, and and how best to uh, run a, a smart, ethical, and effective organization. <laughs>